Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I've been given four verses to speak on. We'll be reading in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go all the way down to verse 10, but we're going to concentrate on 7 through 10. While you're looking for that verse um, or the, that portion of scripture, I'd just like to give a little introduction. Um, you know, it's interesting, the older you get, the more you recognize sinful nature, first of all, in yourself and then, of course, in others. I was teaching Saturday, and we have this um, motto that we're trying to live up to and that we're, trying to, we're responsible to push in the school. It's high performance, high value. And, uh, and so they want us to hold students accountable to that motto. And we start class at 6 o'clock, and in comes somebody about 6.25. And he walks up and he grabs a man, and, and I was just coming in after him because I'd lead the class. I've left, I had left the classroom to get something. And I asked him, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm late. I said, yeah, I know. We start class at 6 o'clock. He says, well, he says, I thought we started at 6.30. I said, really? He said, we've never started at 6.30. Where did you get that idea? He said, well, somebody at work told me, I said, are you even signed up for the class? Oh, yeah, but they didn't send me a letter. I said, well, then you're not signed up for the class. I said, you can go sign up for another class, but you're not going to attend this class. But I talked to the director. I said, I don't care. Come back. You know, um, and I talked to the director after that, and the director told him, listen, if that's what the instructor said. I'm not going against what he said. You'll just have to recently sign up for a class. And I talked to the director uh, um, afterwards, and we both agreed. You know, if he had come and been honest and said, you know, I blew it, but I really need this class, it would have been a different story. But you come making excuses that are lies. It compounds the problem. And, you know, life's full of people that make excuses. And oftentimes we find ourselves making excuses. But it doesn't work with God. God doesn't accept excuses. And it's so easy to see through some of the excuses people make. And I remember when I was ready to come to God, I mean, he brought me to that point. I don't claim any credit, but I knew somehow I better not make excuses with God. I can remember six months before I got saved, I had this experience and I uh, uh, and, and um, I told my girlfriend, I don't want to go to hell. Just out of the blue, I don't want to go to hell. And she asked, well, why shouldn't you go? And that got me thinking. And the first thing I said was, I know this is, I know I haven't got any excuse. I knew that as an unsaved person. I wasn't raised going to church, didn't know anything about God, but I knew that there was no excuse. And then after that, I said, but... I really don't know what God expects of me. Six months later, I couldn't use that excuse anymore. <laughs> but I knew, don't come with an excuse. It's not going to be received very favorably. And so, when we come to God, we better not come with an excuse. We better come humbly before Him and ask, Lord, teach me. Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. And it reminds me of a time I'm, I'm really delighted that 
my daughter Heidi is now bringing up um, spiritual questions, questions about God and about how to answer people. And um, she asked me this question, well, what about the people that have never heard about Jesus? What about those people? You know, and I'm wondering, well, where's she coming from? Because when I usually hear that, it's from coming from somebody that wants to make excuse for God's demands. I said, well, first of all, let me ask you this question. I said, to the person that never has heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, are they a sinner? She says, yes. I said, can God, almighty God, holy and righteous, perfect in all that he says and does, could he send that person to hell for all eternity and would he be justified? Good question. Because how you answer that question is what, you, is what you believe about God. And there's a lot of people that would slander God, would say, well, he's not fair. I will tell you, God is fair. <laughs> Whatever he does, he's the judge of all the earth. He will do right. And so it's much better to come to God wanting to learn how he looks at things and not our own opinion about what's fair and what's not fair and what's just and what's not just. Because any idea we have, if it doesn't line up with his, it's twisted, distorted, and perverted. We just don't understand because we can't see straight because we don't have those eyes to see like God does. And so it's good to align ourselves with the way God sees. And when we do that, there's great blessing. There's marvelous blessing because that's what he's looking for. People that will want to know, God, show me how you see things because that's the way I want to see things. And it starts from before we even know the Lord. It has to start that way. So let's start. Let's read our verse, our verses, and let's get down to the portion I'd like to get to. I'm supposed to get to. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And then verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. And there's two more words. I think they go with the next verse, so I'll leave them for the next verse. The words, in him. You can't read Ephesians, the first chapter of Ephesians, without seeing that those two words come up over and over again. In him, in Christ, uh, in the beloved, in and, that's, and I want us to think about that. What does it mean to be in Christ? And of course, that takes me back to where I was before I was in Christ. Where was I? Where was I? 
We find in Scripture the principle of what's called federal headship. Federal headship. And that's the idea of a representation. We have it all over the world. We have it in society. But really, it started back in the Garden of Eden. And so I'd like to present that and read, up, read some verses that really fortify the idea of um, federal headship. Because we really can't understand the blessings of being in Christ unless we realize where we were in God's sight and in God's eyes. Federal headship. We have to make a, a biblical foundation for it. And so in doing so, we are going to go to Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to show you how God looks at things. Hebrews chapter 6. There's a, quite a lengthy passage there, and we'll read it, and then we'll give the argument, and then show you what we're talking about. It's amazing how God puts just kernels or gems sprinkled through the Word that have so much significance, but you could read over them, and in passing, you think, oh, that's nice. But their value can be seen when they're applied by other scriptures. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the, the, the topic here is the priesthood, a high priest, a high priest. It talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see what that means. For this, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, which was, by, uh, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. So the idea is, wonderfully, God created this, or God has this character in his word, and his name's Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek was a priest to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, which is a tithe. Now, this Melchizedek is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in that it's never recorded in Scripture, his lineage. It's never recorded his death. It says, uh, without father, without mother. It's not that this character in the Old Testament didn't have a father and mother, but as far as the Word of God's concerned, it's not recorded. So it's a picture. It says, without genealogy, it doesn't record his genealogy. Neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, that doesn't mean that this Melchizedek was eternal. It just means as far as Scripture is concerned, the picture that is painted is one such as that describes the Son of God. And his name was Melchizedek. And you'll remember the story where um, Lot was taken captive. And Abraham went after him and he rescued him and some kings with him. And then he met up with Melchizedek. And he, he offered up a, a tenth of a spoil that was given to Melchizedek as a priest, which was really given it to God. So the argument in this passage is the order of priesthood was, was through the tribe of Levi. Levi had the priesthood coming down from uh, Aaron. Levi 
and, 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 and so on. And there arose a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which was above all those priests of Levi. Now observe how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And to those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office had commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But, one of, uh, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, which is Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men received tithes, but in that case, one received them of whom it is witnessed that he lived on, lives on. I'm hoping I can communicate this, this well enough. Um, the argument is this is that the priesthood has always been descendants of Levi. Okay. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as, or he is our high priest. The question is, well, why didn't he come from the tribe of Levi? He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. So you might think, if you were a Jew, a Jew of the time, well, how could be the high priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Well, God placed in the Old Testament an example where there was a high priest that was greater than the priesthood of Levi. He was of a different order. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. So there's precedent there. And we're going to find out something really special here is that even Levi, to whom was given the priesthood to collect tithes from the nation of Israel, even Levi paid tithes to this one that was greater than he, of a different order, which lays foundation for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not of the tribe of Levi, to be the great high priest, even above that of Melchizedek, but according to that order, who, who doesn't have beginning of days, who doesn't have end of days, which describes the eternity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and, and verse 9 is where I want to key in on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So there we have where we can see there's representation, federal headship. And I hope we can see that. Levi was in what relation to Abraham? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Right? So it says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because he was in his loins. He wasn't born yet, was he? So if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, then Levi, coming from Abraham, is seen by God as paying tithes. Federal headship. Abraham was representative of all the descendants after him in his line. And that's how God sees it. Federal headship. So we just went there to establish that it is a biblical concept, and it goes farther than that because it goes back to Adam. When Adam sinned, guess who sinned with him? You and I did. Where were we when Adam sinned? And you know, people today, if you were to try to share with them that they're guilty because Adam sinned, they'd say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Really? It's not. Well, it depends on if you want to see things the way God sees things or if you want to see things in your own mind. 
God will be proven right. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. We'll, we'll continue along this theme in Romans chapter 5. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's interesting that phrase, all sinned. All sinned. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So the question is, between Adam and Moses, the law wasn't given. The law wasn't given until Moses, right? So when there's no law, can there be sin? It says in the scriptures, you know, um, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. That's what was spoken to, Ab uh, to Adam, right? He ate of the fruit. Did he die? He did. Those people that came after him, his descendants, all the way up till Moses, did they eat of the fruit? No. Did they die? Yes. Did they break the law of God? It hadn't been given yet. So why did they die? Federal headship. They sinned when Adam sinned. They sinned in Adam. <clears throat> I want to read something that uh, this fellow, Matt Slick, he wrote a paper on federal headship, and he has a very interesting argument. He says, in these verses we see deep theological truths. When Paul says in verse 12, because all sinned, he has used what's called the aortist indicative in Greek. This means that it's, that it's an action. The action is completed in the past. Therefore, there is a logical implication that we can draw from this. Since it's spoken of in the past, it can't be talking of all humanity because we hadn't yet been born. At least in the future. But it is talking about all of us have sinned in Adam. It says, um, it was not, uh, but it was not true that all men had actually sinned, committed sinful actions at the time that Paul was writing, because some had not even been born yet, and many others had died in infancy before committing any conscious act of sin. So Paul must be meaning that when Adam sinned, God considered true that all men had sinned in Adam. All men had sinned in Adam. Two quotes about federal headship that he, that he puts down here. The federal headship views, considers Adam, the first man, as representative of the human race generated from him. As representative of all humans, Adam's sins, act of sin was considered by God to be the act of all people, and his penalty was judicially made the penalty of everyone. And he also makes the quote, the federal headship of Adam presupposes and rests upon his natural headship. They make a difference between the federal headship and the natural headship. I just understand it this way. The natural headship helps me to understand a little bit about the federal headship. And I think if we put it in illustration, we can, we can understand it a little better. We understand the body. The body is made up of members. Right? What are the members of the body? My hand, my right hand, my left hand. My right leg, my left leg. And so on. If my body dies... Is my right hand going to die? 
Sure, it's going to die. My left hand's going to die. Everything in my body's going to die. How about my cells, individual cells in my body? Are they going to die? If my will creates an act that puts me to death, all the cells in my body are condemned to death, right? That's headship. That's the, I'm the natural head of my body. We have, in, in government, we have heads. When heads of state makes decisions, who's responsible? So the whole country's responsible and held responsible. Um, and so when Adam sinned, what was to die? Every cell in his body, right? What does it say about Levi in relation to Abraham when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek? It said Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithes. So God saw that even Levi paid tithes through Abraham. So therefore, when, Abraham, when Adam sinned, who was in the loins of Adam when he sinned? Everybody. You were, I was, everybody that's ever lived was. And so when Adam made a decision that was to lead to his death, who was included in that penalty? We all were. And today people would say, well, that's not fair. Well, really? <laughs> it's not fair. That's the way things are. It is fair and it's just because that's the way God sees things. And we're no different. You know, people, people like to blame God for things like, oh, what about that baby that was born deformed? How could God be so unfair to have a baby born that way? And I, and I like to throw out the argument, really? Said, Let me ask you this. How many, well, I shouldn't ask this question. <laughs> In my audiences where I work, I can ask this question. How many people do drugs or have done drugs? And I get a whole bunch of hands going up in the air. And, and you know that you're told that when you do drugs and then you have kids, especially during pregnancy, that it can affect the child and they can be more deformed, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you do drugs and you have a kid and the kid's deformed, whose fault is it? Is it yours or is it God's? Oh, that would be mine. Okay, so they see that. It's not too hard to see. Okay. But what about the person whose parents didn't do drugs? I said, okay, well, let me have another question here. Okay. Let's say you do drugs and you have kids and they're not deformed, but their kids are deformed. And then you find a study who said that certain deformities from drugs can end up in the second generation. Now, whose fault is it? Is it the parents of the kids? No. Is it the grandparents of the kids? Yeah, it would be. Okay, so if, if these deformities skip two or three or four or five generations so where no one can see the source, then whose fault is it? Well, they can be walked down a path to understand that, you know what? We don't know everything about sin. We want to place the blame on God. We want to say it's not fair, but really, they're all ultimately passed down as a result of the original sin. And they're complicated by our own decisions to sin in our lives. But somehow we want to blame God. It's not God's fault. <laughs> it's our fault. When I say our fault, starting from Adam, we were part of Adam. And guess what? It's interesting because God put humanity to the test in the Garden of Eden. And there's an illustration that helps us to see this. God doesn't deal with us as stalks of corn, where each one of us is a stalk of corn, and he deals with us individually. He doesn't deal with us like that. It's more like a tree. And we're perhaps the branches, perhaps the leaves, perhaps twigs on the tree. But we're all descendant from Adam. 
You lay an axe to the root of the tree, guess what's going to happen to the branches, the twigs, the leaves, the fruit? It's all going to wither and die. And that's a more accurate picture. We like to think that, or we like to wish that God deals us with, with stalks. You know, where, oh, well, that corn, you can chop that one off, but that doesn't mean I'm going to die. God doesn't deal with us like that. We're part and parcel of Adam and of humanity, and we're linked together. And it really, it brings out um, a point of view that I've never considered before, and, and uh, perhaps a misconception that you might have. As a result of all this, um, he writes, Here then we learn what is the formal grounds of man's judicial condemnation before God. The popular idea of what renders man a sinner in the sight of heaven is altogether inadequate and false. The prevailing concept that is a sinner is one who commits and practices sin. They're saying that's false. Now, would you agree with that? That a sinner is one who commits and practices sin? I'm not saying it's not true, but the fundamental understanding of it. It is true that this is the character of a sinner, but certainly not that which primarily constitutes him a sinner. The truth is that every member of our race enters this world a guilty sinner before he ever commits a single transgression. Now, think about that. We're willing to say that a baby is born with a sinful nature, right? But to say that that baby is a guilty sinner before God. We somehow see a differentiation there, don't we? It's not only that he possesses a sinful nature, but he is directly under condemnation. We are legally constituted sinners neither by what we are nor by what we are doing, but by disobedience of our federal head, Adam. Adam acted not for himself alone, but for all who are to spring from him. See, that's a legal basis for our condemnation. And that, that comes before anything we actually consciously do in this life as sinners. So the question is, before I ever consciously sin, am I still a guilty sinner? Is God still just? Yes, He is. And, and that's a difficulty for some people. You know Why? Because they try to squeeze God into their idea of fairness rather than sit as a student under the teaching of the Word of God and say, God, how do you look at things? I'm guilty. I was guilty. I've always been guilty, even before I ever sinned. When I grew up, as I grew up, my guilt manifested itself through my conscious decision to sin over and over and over again. I proved myself to be a sinner by my actions. But I was a sinner before those actions. That was just the proof, the demonstration to the world. Wow. How can you tell a baby has a sinful nature? It's going to take a little time, isn't it? When they're first born, it's pretty hard to see. We see innocence. You know, we see newness. You know, I mean, psychology likes to tell us, oh, it's like a blank cassette tape, and it's going to be molded by what you put on the tape. No, that's what God says. God says, 
that baby has inherited a sinful nature. Not only has it inherited a sinful nature, it's guilty before God and under condemnation because it sinned, he or she sinned in Adam. We're guilty in Adam. And until we understand that, we really can't appreciate and we wouldn't be right in applying what it's talking about in our passage of what it means to be in Christ. You can't have the one without accepting the other. If you don't accept that you're guilt, you were guilty in Adam, then you can't accept that you're justified in Christ because it's under the same idea, federal headship, that God legally is justified in one, condemning the one, and two, pardoning the other because of what Christ has done. This has been a, um, the principle on which and the method by which God has acted all through. Here's examples from scriptures. The posterity of, posterity of Canaan were cursed for the single transgression of their parents. I don't know if you remember that. Um, when Noah and his family came out of the ark and Noah drank some wine and he was found naked, something happened where Canaan was cursed as a result. And as a result, his posterity was affected by what he did. Is that fair? That's life. <laughs> that, that's, that's how it was. The Egyptians perished at the Red Sea as a result of Pharaoh's wickedness. He was their head. He decided to pursue the Israelites through the Red Sea. His soldiers followed. They perished as a result of his decision. That's federal headship. When Israel became God's witness in the earth, it was the same. The sins of the fathers were visited upon the children. In consequence of Achan's one sin, his whole family was stoned to death. That doesn't seem fair to us in this day and age, does it? Why was his family stoned? Federal headship. They all acted. He was the representative. They were all held accountable. And that's why God has those things in his word. So then later on, he could teach us about federal headship. He could teach us. Now, I didn't know that when I first got saved. I didn't realize that when I got saved, I, I, I just came to a Bible study and said, I want to learn what God has to say. And the question of, are you a sinner, came up. And I, yeah, I'm a sinner. That was easy enough because I'd sinned so much. If you were to ask me federal headship, was I responsible for sin before I was even, even sinned the first time, I would have said... What? <laughs> but as we grow, we learn these deeper truths of the Word of God, and it helps us see through God's eyes. And then it helps us to appreciate when we do come to God on His terms, understand His way of looking at things, the just and perfect way, then we, get, we are blessed because then we can see, and we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see how now we're under a different federal head. Now, instead of inheriting all the condemnation through Adam's sin, we inherit all the blessings through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then we see how full and complete that is. And not only that, but we see the legal justification. We see that our sins were, are forgiven in a just and righteous way because of what Christ has done. It says later, it says the high priest acted on behalf of the whole nation. Later, the king was held accountable for the conduct of his subjects. One acting on behalf of others, the one responsible for the many, is a basic principle of both human and divine government. We cannot get, get, get away from it. Wherever we look, it stares us in the face. Um, 
Finally, let it be pointed out that the sinner's salvation is made to depend on the same principle. Beware, my reader, of quarreling with the justice of this law of representation. This principle wrecks us, and this principle alone rescues us. The disobedience of the first Adam was the judicial ground for our condemnation. The obedience of the last Adam is the legal ground on which God alone can justify the sinner. Substitution of Christ in the place of his people, the imputation of their sins to him and his righteousness to them is the cardinal fact of the gospel. But the principle of being saved by what another has done is only possible on the ground that we are lost through what another did. The two stand or fall together. We are lost through what Adam did. We're saved through what Christ did. Representation. Representation. So when we read in him, it takes on new meaning. In him we have redemption through his blood. You see, we could never be redeemed without the shed blood of Lord Jesus Christ. We could never be redeemed without him paying the full and just penalty of what Adam got us into. And you know what? It's not just what Adam got us into. And this is what I, I, I like, you know, um, about sharing the gospel. I share the gospel, and I always and only share the gospel with people who can understand it. I don't talk, I'm not going to go to Luke's little boy next week and share the gospel with him. because He's not going to understand it. But I can share it with Luke. And when I talk about sin, I don't have to talk about sin of, that you have even when you're born. We can talk to an adult about sin that they've committed in their lifetime with the act of their will. They've decided to sin. Nobody made them sin. They don't, we don't have to talk about the inherited sin, even though it's true. It's, have you sinned? And we carry guilt because of our sins as well. And it's only through the blood of Christ that we have redemption. What does redemption mean to you? What does redemption mean to you? Redemption. It talks about someone that's bought back. You know? He bought us back out of slavery. He bought us back out of what we were part and parcel of in Adam. And it was a pretty high price that he paid. We can't imagine how high. It was his blood. It was his death on the cross that he redeemed us. That's how much you're worth to him. How much he paid. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness of our trespasses. I don't think we can ever comprehend how deep our sin goes. Through my life, um, God continually, through my life, has showed me my sins. And as he shows them, to me, he expects me to see them as he sees them. That's confession. Be sorrowful over those. And then ask him to change me. Change me. At the beginning, it was the big sins that were pretty easy to see and easy to change. They might have been immorality, foul mouth, stealing, those are all what we consider the big sins, right? And they're easy compared to the smaller ones that we consider smaller but aren't necessarily smaller, like selfishness. Have you ever tried stopping being selfish? <laughs> it's ingrained in our very, our very nature, and the roots go down deep. 
And sometimes we really don't realize how deep they go until we go through an experience and the Lord puts his finger and says, see how selfish you are? <laughs> and that's, no, so that's not so easy to change as stopping to use swear words, as stopping to steal, you know? And so our sins run deep, deeper than we could ever imagine. And um, it's not too hard to find excuses, people that make excuses over their sins. And if we look close enough and deep enough, we can find our own excuses that we make. And, and, And God doesn't want us to make excuses. He wants us to see things as He sees them, and He wants us to have the freedom that He bought for us on the cross. And that can only come through accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. Being placed in him, giving the power over sin in your life and him helping you along the way. According to the riches of his grace, unmerited favor. I always am confounded by that. Why has God chosen me to show me his grace, to show me his kindness, to show me his redemption? That will confound me for all eternity and lead me to worship him because I'm not worthy. Um, You know, and, and it's easy to say that. But it's times where he reveals your sin to you, the selfishness or other sins that you really come to agree with him that you are a sinner. And the grace means that much more. He lavished upon us that grace. Lavished upon us. He didn't just sprinkle. He poured it out on us because that's what we needed. That's what we needed. You know, it's marvelous to think of the grand plan of God. When God created Adam, he knew that he was going to sin. He knew what Eve and Adam were going to do in the garden. He knew the consequences that would bring in the world. And look at the world. Look all around us. I mean, a day doesn't go by where in here in the Bay Area we don't hear of a shooting. Two of them in San Francisco, you know, in the, the wholesale jewelry market there. Every day we hear of the consequences of sin. And we're a part of that. That sin is in us. You know, it's amazing to think when God put humanity to the test, He tested Adam, the perfect man. The perfect man. He was an adult in the Garden of Eden. He walked with God. A lot of people think Adam was a simple guy. He was more intelligent than all of us because he wasn't encumbered with a lifetime of sin. He was without sin. And so when God put humanity to the test, he picked the perfect person to do it. So what do you th- how do you think you would fare under that test in the Garden of Eden? We like to think, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Oh, I guarantee you we would have eaten the fruit. If the perfect man ate the fruit, we would have eaten it. We would have eaten it. But God, he showers us, he lavishes grace upon us. It says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're here this morning, God had planned that you would come to know his son from the foundations of the world. He had you in mind. And as the ages roll out throughout all eternity, he wants you to be there, and you're going to be there. (laughs) If you don't know him, consider this. He's paved the way. He's opened the door for you to walk through and receive remissions of sin. To know that he has a plan for you for all eternity. To get to know him. 
and to marvel at his grace for all eternity. I, I, I can't imagine what, what's to come. You know, um, I oftentimes grow weary of my sinful nature in this life. And I oftentimes grow weary of seeing the world more clearly defined as the ages roll by. And I have to confess, I get sick and tired of it. And, and uh, frustrated, sick and tired, I grow to, to, to dislike it and hate it. And then I realize I'm a part of it because we're sinners. And I say, you know, who's to save us? <laughs> Wretched man that I am. And then we think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. He saves us. He saved us and will save us. And one day will pull us out of this world, separate us from our sinful nature, and we will never see that the twain never shall meet again. You know, It's going to be wonderful. And then the ages will roll on with him. He's got a plan for the ages, you know. It's not, I don't have any misconceived ideas that we're just going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp for the rest of eternity. You know? When I think of the marvels that he's allowed us to uncover even in this sinful age about the glories of his creation, I can't imagine what lessons he's got for us in eternity. And I'm looking forward to it. And if you know him, I know you are. It says, uh, he purposed in us with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. The summing up of all things in Christ. Think about that. Who is Christ Jesus to you? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, we ask that question to people. Oh, he's the son of God. But is he God? Oh, he's the son of God. No, but is he God? Very God. He is our creator. He is the one that sustained us by the word of his power. He is the one that loved us so much that he died on the cross for us. He is the one that planned that we if you know him, if you have a personal relationship with him, he had planned that and he brought you to himself because he has a purpose not only just for your life here, but for all eternity. And I, I like what Bill McDonald said. He believed, and I believe the same thing, that we're immortal until our job's done here on earth. That means no one can touch you. No one can harm you outside of his permissive will. And with that, he will give you the strength he will give you the capacity to handle whatever he allows you to go through. Because his hands are around you. He's got a purpose for you. And I think what courage should that give us to speak out boldly for him? Everything's about him. This creation's about him. This salvation's about him. Eternity's about him. And so oftentimes we get distracted with the here and now. We get distracted with what we consider needs. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have all you need. And all those other things he'll, he'll take care of. He always does. You know? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Isn't that precious? I hope that, that understanding federal headship has helped us to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ more, appreciate what we have in him. When we think of what we had in Adam... A just condemnation of a righteous God. Death that we deserve. As our life grew and we matured and manifested the sinful nature, we come to understand how much we deserve from the hands of a holy and righteous God. 
and for him to love us so much to send the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, so that he could transfer us from this federal head to this federal head, from the curse to the blessing, from eternal damnation to eternal glory. And to know that he loves you personally. He loves me. That's amazing. That should cause us to worship him. It should cause us to go out with a desire to share that with others. The God who loves us so much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have to confess that oftentimes concepts in your, words aren't, in your word aren't easy for us to understand. And we just pray that you'd help us to understand it. Help us to communicate your truth to others, Lord. Help us to have a correct view, Lord, of life, of ourselves, of those around us, of the world, Lord. Help us to see through Christ's eyes. We do praise you and bless you. And thank you so much for your grace that's been lavished upon us, Lord. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you yet, Lord, that they would long to know you, that they'd long to have a transfer from their federal head to the Lord Jesus Christ as their federal head, Lord. That they might know the forgiveness of sins, that they might know the glories of knowing you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.